Well, good morning all and welcome to the next podcast in our series concerning the federal election campaign. The significance of this podcast, of course, is that we're recording it after the election and so we know who the government will be for the next three years. The Liberal Party did take a grab bag of initiatives to the campaign, or at least they announced them prior to the election campaign, and I'm joined from our Brisbane office by Wendy Favell to talk about those measures. Morning, Wendy. Good morning. Happy Friday from sunny Brisbane. <laughs> the Much of what we've done on our hub, Wendy, of course, has been looking at the ALP pre-election policy, which was a chunky document. I think it uh, covered 16-odd pages in uh, one of the chapters of their platform, and there were additional announcements made by the ALP during the campaign. Uh, compared to that, Wendy, what do we see generally on the on the Liberal Party side? Look, the announcements that we've compiled are those over mainly over the last year. Um, certainly, the document that we've prepared is a lot shorter. Um, it does include responses of the government to certain task force reports or parliamentary committees. Um, but it does give a really helpful guide for what we can expect to play out over this year. And I know that politicians will argue about this, Wendy, but um, your view would be useful. Will the Liberal Party be able to claim a mandate for the sorts of measures that we're about to discuss, do you think? Look, I think they've got the majority in the House of Representatives. I think the Senate, from memory, is still playing out in terms of the numbers. Um, But certainly they're in a better position than they um, were last year, so we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. I guess my point, though, is that these measures we're about to talk about were all made public, were they? And, and the Liberal Party um, was seen to endorse them publicly as measures that they supported. Yes, they were. Okay. Now, listeners should be aware that on our federal election hub, we've got two sensational documents outlining the policies and the various measures of that both parties took to the election, and Wendy is the author of those documents. So thanks for all your work there, Wendy. No problem, and a big thanks to Natasha Smith, one of the solicitors in our Melbourne office who has been trawling through newspaper articles and announcements every day to make sure that this publication is kept up to date daily. Excellent. So listeners should be aware that on the hub they should navigate to the Liberal Party Industrial Relations Law Reform Agenda document. Um the most recent one's dated 15 May 2019. So we'll just get to that document. I'll walk through some of the more significant uh, announcements and get you to describe them for us, Wendy, and perhaps tell our listeners what impact you expect that they might have on, on business. And the first one is one that interests me significantly because it deals with enterprise bargaining. Uh, the announcement appears to have been made at the end of March of 2019 and to the effect that the Liberal Party will look into the process to approve enterprise agreements to ensure that the safety net is not undermined and unnecessary red tape is removed. What do you think the announcement's getting at in in practice, Wendy? We don't have a lot of detail around um, what specific parts of the approval process that they'll be looking at, but I think certainly the key changes in the area of enterprise agreement approvals have been Firstly, in relation to the genuinely agreed test, where there's been a lot of case law um, pushing out the concept um, and looking at specific things that employers might do that impact that genuine agreement. 
Um, and the oh. and the other area is in relation to the better off overall test. So um, it's become quite complex for many employers to navigate, given that each employee covered by the agreement has to be better off overall. And if you've got large workplaces with um, various different rosters, the financial um, analysis that has to go into making sure that test is met can be quite significant. So I suspect there'll be two key areas that they'll look at to see whether it can be simplified in any way. Yeah, there's certainly areas where the Commission's made a bit of a mismatch of um, its processes in more recent years. I'm old enough, unfortunately, we need to remember enterprise bargaining being introduced at the federal level in 1993. And I think for, well, for more than 20 years, um, there was never any any doubt about the genuinely agreed test uh, and the notion that it required examination of the employees who voted uh, and whether they were under any duress or suffered from coercion either way. Uh, and likewise, the boot test was a point-in-time test. You didn't have to uh, imagine theoretical employees and rosters. You looked at what you had at the time and whether the agreement provided a better outcome than the award might for those people in that circumstance. So let's hope that the changes here might take us back to um, a somewhat more simpler environment. Um, I noticed here moving on, Wendy, that there's a, a real focus on employee protection, it seems, in most of these measures. And the next one deals with paid parental leave. Can you tell us what the Liberal Party's promising there? Yeah, so this is a little change to the paid parental leave scheme, um, but one I think that would have a big impact on some parents. So what it allows parents to do is to break up their leave by taking up to six weeks um, at any time over a two-year period. So it means that someone could go back to work on a part-time basis but then still have access to their paid parental leave. Okay, well, it sounds like it'll be a, a loosening up or introducing some flexibility into employees' access of that entitlement. Uh, yeah, agree. Okay, um, it wouldn't be a, a modern uh, examination of policy without looking at the issue of casuals, and I can see three broad uh, announcements in this policy. Um, can you tell us about the first one, the popular issue of casual conversion, and, and what is it that the Liberal Party are looking to do in this area? In around February of this year, they actually introduced a bill to um, deal with casual conversion. And now the bill is now lapsed, so it would have to be reintroduced in order to progress through Parliament. But it does contain some quite interesting things in it. The kind of two key areas where it really looks at is um, trying to make sure all enterprise agreements include a specific casual conversion term that meets a certain standard. And then the second is making sure there's a bit of a gap filler for those who don't currently have a casual conversion entitlement. So in many awards, there is already a casual conversion entitlement. In some enterprise agreements, they do have a casual conversion entitlement. But for those who are award agreement free or who are covered by an instrument that doesn't have a term, the idea of this bill is to put an entitlement into the National Employment Standards for those people that gives them the right to request from their employer to become full-time or part-time. And there's a process that both the employee and the employer has to follow in order to make that happen. 
Okay, so let's just look at the nature of the right to request. Um, I take from what you're saying that the Liberals aren't proposing to alter how that machinery works in the current conversion clauses in the award system, um, but these changes appear directed to the scope of or access to to that process. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the existing clauses in modern awards will still apply to to people who are covered by um, those awards. It's more people who are designated as casual by their employer who've worked for a period of 12 months with a regular pattern of hours on an ongoing basis um, who either are covered by an award that doesn't have a term or who are covered by an enterprise agreement that doesn't have a term that meets the standards or who are award agreement free. So it's kind of a narrow gap of people. Yeah, and it's those people who don't now have access that will be given access to this process to make a request. Exactly. So this is a bit that interests me, I suppose. I think during the course of our our work on the Hub pre-election, somebody advised me that there's about a million casual employees in the economy who are regular and systematic casuals and have been that way for, for more than 12 months. So broadening the access to the right to make these requests, you would think, will lead to increasing numbers of requests that employers will have to deal with. Where do they go if there's disagreement? If the employee makes the request, the employer says, I can't convert you, might be business reasons, might be very good reasons. Um, The employee doesn't accept that answer and says, no, I want to be permanent. What's the safety valve? How how are those disputes resolved? Those disputes would be resolved in a dispute resolution procedure, and it really depends on the employee and the instrument that they're covered by as to what that dispute resolution procedure would be. So, for instance, if it's under a modern award, the standard modern award clause would apply and that dispute resolution would, procedure would apply. If it's an enterprise agreement, the same goes. It's whatever the enterprise agreement says. And then if an employee is in a situation where they don't have a modern award covering them, they don't have an enterprise agreement covering them, then there's a standard dispute resolution procedure in the National Employment Standards that they would be able to dispute. Um, but it, it is a standard dispute resolution procedure, but it only provides for consent arbitration at the end. So both parties would have to agree for the Fairwork Commission to arbitrate the dispute. And I think the modern award... The standard modern award disputes procedure doesn't contain a right to arbitration but also requires consent of the parties. Um, where would that leave the parties, Wendy? It, it, does that mean that employers can feel safe in the knowledge they won't be forced to make this conversion? Yes, but they've got to have reasonable they've got to have reasonable grounds. So there's provisions in the bill that says that if they're refusing a request as well as complying with the timing requirements and the requirements to put things in writing, they've still got to have reasonable grounds after they've consulted with the employee that are based on facts that are known or reasonably foreseeable. So while there may be situations where they may not be um, required to face an arbitration into the dispute, there's still that conciliation that would need to happen and you would think that if there was a situation where an employer didn't have reasonable grounds, there would be a fair bit of pressure on that employer in order yeah. to reconsider the request. Okay, so it sounds like there's a, um, there is value in ensuring that the response to the request is carefully considered and, and well prepared. Yes, I agree. Okay, um, Skeen, that uh, 
now infamous case, I guess, from from 2018. I recall the um, engaged and paid as such definition of a casual. I think it's been in the in the system for about 30 years, um, and it's another one of those where, at least as I was making my way through, um, there was never any particular doubt about it. It was actually seen to be quite an objective test in the sense that you looked at the contract, you looked at what the parties agreed, if they agreed that the engagement was a casual engagement uh, and if the employee was paid the loading, uh, that was the end of the matter. Now, of course, Skeen turned that on its head and introduced this notion that the courts could look at post-contract conduct and if the manner of the employment worked out in such a way that it resembles um, what permanent employment might look like, um, orders can be made that the employee can access permanent employment entitlements. Um, what's the Liberal Party proposing here? How, how, how will they deal with the scheme ruling, Wendy? So in, in two ways. Um, firstly, probably the next decision in this space that we're waiting for is the Workpack and Rosado case. Now, that judgment is currently reserved in the full court of the federal court. Um, but interestingly, the Minister for Jobs and Industrial Relations, Kelly O'Dwyer, intervened in that proceeding. And the submissions that she made in that proceeding were around trying to prevent double dipping. So this concept that a casual employee over many years received a casual loading of 25% mm. in lieu of entitlements such as annual leave um, that they would ordinarily get if they were a full-time employee. So... They receive that casual loading and then they later make a claim for leave entitlements such as annual leave. And the, what the minister said was, well, employees shouldn't be able to double dip. They get the casual loading or they get the leave. They don't get both. And Go on. And what they also did in late last year was introduce a regulation that was made um, that really brought in this um, idea that employees cannot double dip. So while it's not intended to change the law, I think it does support employers in claims that are brought by employees saying that they're entitled to annual leave when for many years they've received a casual voting. Mm. So it doesn't sound like the proposal um, interferes with the scheme reasoning. A casual can still point to the way their employment has worked out and say I should be a are permanent, but what it does do is protect the employer from, I guess, having to grant the employee the money and the box, the permanent employment and the casual loading. Exactly. Is that a, yeah, okay. Now, the regulations, now, sorry, the regulations were subject to a notice of disallowance um, that was due to be voted on in April, and if that was successful, then the regulation would disappear. Now, that vote hasn't happened yet, so it'll be interesting to see whether the Labor Party continues pushing that in an effort to um, ensure that the regulation no longer applies going forward. Okay. Um, the Nationals have made an announcement in this area as well, which will may have some impact for our mining clients. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, there was a House of Representatives Standing Committee report in early December 2018 that looked into how the mining sector can support businesses in regional economies and what that actually recommended, and it was a Nationals-led um, committee, it recommended that the federal government conduct a review into the use of the casualised workforces in the mining industry 
to prohibit the move towards replacing directly employed full-time workers with permanent casual employees. Now, when that report came out, the Liberal Party said that it was considering considering the report. It hasn't taken any further steps um, in order to address that report, but we may see further steps coming out of that this year. Okay. Well, that's one to watch, I think, because clearly there's a large workforce in mining and uh, as we've seen with some class actions around the place, casuals are, well, they do feature in, in lots of different areas of, of the mining industry. Now, the next one's interesting. I, uh, it's a uh, National Labor Hire Registration Scheme. I thought for a moment I'd open the wrong document and I was looking at the ALP <laughs> policy, Wendy. Um, I'm not sure many people are aware that the Liberals made an announcement, looks like it was in March of 19, um, to the effect that they would support the creation of a National Labor Hire Registration Scheme. Well, it looks to me as though it's a slightly different scheme to what Labor was promising. Uh, can you tell us a bit about um, what they've said? Yeah, sure. So we've already got schemes currently in place in Queensland and Victoria that apply to um, providers that provide labour in those states. So the idea of the scheme is labour hire providers that fall within the definition, which is actually broader than your traditional labour hire companies, if they fall within the definition, they're required to have a licence. Um, and if they don't, they can't provide labour in that state. And then it also impacts clients who are engaging those providers. So if you're a client, you need to make sure that the providers that you're engaging are actually licensed. So that's kind of the basics of the schemes. And it sounds like those basics reflect what we've seen in Queensland and Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, what the Labor Party did was they said, okay, well, looking at those state schemes, we actually want to make a national scheme that applies to all industries. So if you're a provider and you don't have a licence you can't provide labour in Australia, which is quite significant. Mm. Mm. Now, the Liberal Party proposal was in response to a migrant workers' task force report, and that task force was made up of various regulatory agencies, including the Fair Work Ombudsman and some government departments. And what they were looking at was how to make tweaks to the system to deal with migrant worker exploitation. Um, One of the recommendations of that was to create a national scheme um, that addressed the four key areas. So what the coalition has said is we'll accept that recommendation. We don't want to impact the whole of the labour hire industry and create unnecessary red tape, but what we want to do is focus on the areas where we know there's issues with worker exploitation, and these are the horticulture industry, the meat processing industry, the cleaning and the security industry. So in those areas, I suspect there will be a national scheme that will be introduced um, and the specifics, I think, will be consulted over first. But the Mm. interesting thing, I think, will be how the state schemes that are a lot broader are then interact interact with the federal scheme. Mm. So we'll have to wait for some specifics around that. um, So in terms of this announcement, if our clients are outside horticulture, meat processing, cleaning and security, there's nothing for them to see here. This announcement won't affect them. Yeah, and then it's just dealing with the Queensland and the Victorian schemes um, that are currently in play and watching the other states to see what steps they're going to take. Yeah, that's interesting because we do have Labor governments, uh, at least where I'm sitting at the moment in WA um, and elsewhere. So... Given that the ALP hasn't taken government federally, 
it would be, I think it is good advice to watch what they do because they may replicate um, what's in Queensland and, and Victoria. Um, right of entry, uh, moving on in, in your document, um, what do we see in this area, Wendy? So no significant changes yet. I suspect this is going to be an area that they're um, going to look further into. But um, in March this year, the coalition actually made some regulations that make two little tweaks to the scheme. The first is in relation to the form of the permit. So what they're actually introducing is photo IDs, the idea being that if someone rocks up to a site and you're an employer, you can request to look at their permit and that permit will have their photo on it, similar to a driver's licence. So you'll be able to confirm that they are the permit holder that they say they are by having access to that photo. The second one is in, in relation to the notice forms themselves that are required to be given to employers and occupiers. There's just a little bit more detail that's been introduced into the forms that give a short outline of what the obligations are of employers, occupiers and permit holders in relation to right of entry for those who are less familiar with right of entry, um, mm. just to give them heads up on what their obligations are. So little tweaks to the scheme, but certainly... Which don't, um, don't sound to me as though they would be controversial. No. Okay. Um, speaking of controversial, I guess one of the areas of the ALP policy which attracted significant attention concerned its proposals to abolish a couple of regulators, the Australian Building and Construction Commission and, of course, the Building Code, which is made under the ABCC Act, uh, and the firm, um, the Registered Organisations um, Commission. Commission. What, uh, we haven't got a Labor government. What, what have the Liberals said about those regulators, if anything? Well, certainly the rock, as it's affectionately known, looks like it will stay. Um, the ABCC will not only stay, but they'll actually increase its funding by $3.7 over the next four years. Now, there was a review done into the ABCC at the end of last year to see how the Act was working and how the ABCC was working in the industry. There are some minor tweaks that they've suggested as to what the ABCC should look into. Um, for instance, security of payments is notoriously complex at a state and federal level, mm. and there is provisions in the building code that deal with security payments. So one of the things that came out of the recommendations were that the department should consider the ABCC's role in security of payments given that complexity. Yes. Um, but certainly ABCC is here to stay for now, and the building code 2016 that's made under the Act will continue to apply. Okay. Um, one of the more interesting matters we've been dealing with in our national team is the Rugby Australia and Israel Folau matter. It's got a lot of press and I think um, um, raises some really interesting issues which commentators um, uh, are writing about really from both sides of the debate. So I was, was interested to see a reference to freedom of religion in the um, Liberal Party announcement from December 2018. What are the Liberals planning in, in this area, Wendy? So this, what they're proposing to do is introduce a Religious Discrimination Act at a federal level. So this came out of debate around um, schools, religious schools, and the okay. extent that students that hold certain religions could be refused access to that school. But what they're proposing to do is introduce a new federal act. So we've already got 
the Race Discrimination Act, the Sex Discrimination Act and the Disability Discrimination Act at a federal level. Yep. I think the idea would be to have one that focuses on religion to protect um, Australians of faith under that. Okay. Um, what they've said is they're going to seek some feedback on draft legislation and then they'll go from there. Okay, interesting. Um, unfair dismissal is something that all employers are aware of and um, I think the, the number is still up around fourteen or 15,000 applications are made each year. Uh, there's a proposal to tweak the unfair dismissal um, provisions and how they operate. Tell us a bit about yeah. that. What they're going to do is do a bit of a review of unfair dismissal laws and how they intersect with other laws. They haven't given a lot of detail around this, but I think one of the things where there's a clear problem at the moment is the intersection between unfair dismissal laws and safety laws. So obviously employers have quite um, serious um, obligations in relation to safety in the workplace. And when an incident happens, um, that is the fault of a particular employee that exposes other employees to risk. Um, Employers are in a bit of a catch-22 situation. They have to take action in order to um, protect other employees and and minimise the risk of it happening again because they have quite serious safety obligations. But if they make disciplinary decisions and decide to terminate that employee because they've breached some sort of safety policy or procedure, what often happens is they face an unfair dismissal claim. And Mm. in the Fair Work Commission, the decisions on this are quite inconsistent. Mm. And in many cases an employer's decision to terminate someone because of a breach of a safety procedure, um, the claim has actually been successful against the employer, meaning that they have to either reinstate that person or pay them compensation. So there's, there's a bit of a mismatch, I think, between the two, and this is one of the areas that it looks like the coalition's looking into to see if tweaks can be made to the system to deal with this sort of scenario. Interesting. So I suppose it might be taking out of the scope of review by unfair dismissal cases terminations which uh, are based on breach of safety requirements or it alternatively could take the form of a direction to the Commission uh, in the exercise of its discretion to afford significant weight to the employer's obligations uh, under safety legislation. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they what they recommend in that regard. Mm. All right, there's a bit more here, but um, given the time, I'll just take you to a couple because there's a a reference in the sort of liability part um, of the announcements to criminal penalties for exploitative conduct and extending accessorial liability for offences under the Fair Work Act. They're two things that I think clients will want to be aware of. Um, Tell us a little bit about them, Wendy. Yeah, so these were made, these were recommendations of the Migrant Workers Task Force report that was released and the Liberal Party has come back and and adopted many of those recommendations. These are probably the two key ones to be aware of because I think um, certainly in relation to the accessorial liability one, it impacts not only those who are employing migrant workers but those who are employing other workers. Um, So like the vulnerable workers legislation that was brought in a while back that extended accessorial liability to franchisors and holding companies in respect of um, franchisees and subsidiaries, they're proposing to broaden it further to deal with um, companies that 
contract out services to other persons and extending it to that group of companies as well. Mm. Um, the other one is in relation to criminal conduct. Now, they haven't necessarily said that they're going to do this, but they're certainly considering introducing provisions that mean that criminal sanctions could be introduced where there's really, really serious exploitation. So what they've said is where there's clear, deliberate and systemic exploitation mm. of local migrant workers, um, then there would be criminal um, penalties associated with that. So it's not intended to target inadvertent underpayments. Yeah. It, it's those that are the most serious. But it's yeah. certainly one that at the time it was announced, there was a lot of criticism um, from employer associations about this. Mm. Okay, well, with manslaughter, workplace manslaughter laws in the safety area, I guess there's enough there to make employers sit up and take notice. Certainly is. All right, well, there's a little more here in the document, so I might um, just direct our readers to the Harbour Game to have a look at Wendy's summary. I think what's evident from this morning's discussion is that whilst we saw quite a radical agenda for some fairly wholesale change to the system, or at least turning the dials, I think I called it in one of my articles, uh, if the ALP won government, um, the Liberal Party had its own set of announcements. Um, they are not as broad in scope. Um, they didn't attract as much profile during the campaign. But I think what this morning's discussions do is at least emphasise that it's going to be necessary for employers to watch the space and to monitor changes because it sounds like there certainly will be some changes in the um, to the Fair Work Act and associated legislation. So thanks for telling us about that, Wendy. Thanks, Anthony. Um, and enjoy your morning. Thank you. Cheers. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.